Today is the fourth Sunday in our six-Sunday series on prayer, and this morning I want to talk to you about bold prayer. What is a bold prayer? Have you ever prayed a bold prayer? That's what we're going to talk about. If you want to get your Bibles open, you can turn to James 5, two verses there, and then we're going to be in 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18 for selected verses and uh, you can follow in your Bibles or you can follow as, uh, in, in the screen. It'll be up on the, on the screen as well. When I think of bold praying, I think of this story that I read a few years ago, and I think I may have shared it here once before. But it's a very good story about bold praying. It seems like a pastor was out visiting one of his elderly church members. She was not quite a shut-in, but she didn't get out a lot. And uh, as he was visiting in her home... Uh, they talked about church events and people they knew, and finally when he was ready to leave, he had prayer with her, and just before he left, he said, is there anything I can help you with? Anything you need done around the house, anything that needs to be done, I'll be glad to help you if I can. And she thought, she said, well, there is one thing, and I'm not sure if you can help me with this or not. He said, what is it? I'll try my best. He said, she said, well, my cat climbed up in the tree in the front yard this morning, and I cannot get him to come down. I've taken out food, I've called to him, I've done everything I can think of, and that cat's up in the top of that tree. And of course, I can't get up there to, to help him out. And so the pastor said, well, I'll do my best to help you if I can. So he went out and looked at the tree, and it wasn't a very strong, stout tree. It was, you know, a spindly kind of a tree, a young tree. But the cat was way up in the branches, and the preacher knew that he couldn't climb it. It would break the branches down, and there was not a ladder. So he came up with this ingenious idea. He got a rope, and he tied it up in the tree as far as he could reach and took the other end of the rope and tied it to the bumper of his car. And he thought, now I'll just back up, pull that tree over, and then I could reach up and grab the cat, and everything would be fine. Well, that's what he did. He wrapped the tree, uh, the rope around the tree as high as he could reach. He put it around his bumper, and he got in the car and began to back up. And would you know that about the time he got it to where that tree was bent over enough for him to reach up and grab the cat, the rope broke. And the tree whipped back up into the air, and that cat went flying through the air. And the preacher thought, oh, no, what have I done? I've, I've hurt the cat. I've probably killed the cat. And he apologized profusely, and then he went around trying to find the cat. And when he didn't find the cat anywhere close, he got in his car and drove through the night. He couldn't find the cat. And again, he apologized, and the lady, she was, you know, sad, of course, but she knew the preacher had done everything he could, and of course, she didn't hold a grudge. So the preacher just hung his head and left. Well, he told his wife about it, and she thought it was sad, and they didn't know what they were going to do, but... About three days later, the pastor was in the grocery store. His wife had asked him to pick up a few things on his way home. And while he was shopping in the grocery store, he came across one of his church members who was also shopping, and their buggies had kind of met in the aisle, and they were chatting back and forth. And he just happened to notice that she had in her shopping cart a bag of cat food. And he knew that this lady did not like cats. In fact, she detested cats. It seemed kind of strange to him that she would have a bag of cat food. And so he said to her, ma'am, I, I, thought, I thought you didn't like cats very well. And she said, oh, you're, you mean the cat? Yeah, I, I don't know. what." She said, well, pastor, you will not believe what happened. 
Three days ago, my daughter, who's been asking me for a cat for a year, and I kept telling her, no, we're not going to get a cat. No, we're not going to get a cat. Well, anyway, she was bugging the daylights out of me. So I said, honey, if God wants you to have a cat, <laughs> so why don't you go out in the backyard and just pray? And, and if God wants you to have a cat, he'll give you a cat. And she said, preacher, you won't believe this. She got on her knees to pray. And just as she started praying, this cat came right out of the sky. <laughs> and she got her cat. Now, I would say... That was bold praying. What about you? We may not have had any answers quite as dramatic as that, but maybe you have in some part of your life discovered that God does answer bold prayers. But maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never asked God for anything very bold. And one of the little things I'd like to encourage you to do this morning as you listen to the message is there's something in your life maybe that God wants you to pray for that's pretty bold. And I'll give you a definition of bold praying in just a minute. But let's go to the scriptures, if you will. Let's read first in James, and this passage in James is very instructive to us about what happened in First and Second Kings. It says, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now over to 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, Ahab was the king of the northern tribes that formed the nation of Israel, as the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Now, some of you know the story that happens between chapter 17 and chapter 18 and how Elijah was hidden by God where he sent him and he put, he stayed put. And then at the end of the three years of drought, actually three and a half years, because you see, it doesn't rain in Israel from the spring to the fall. There's the early rains and the late rains. And so it was about three and a half years. In verse 36 of 1 Kings 18, at the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to lay, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, and that at your word, notice that, at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, this is the prayer that Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel when he had the contest with the prophets of Baal and the Lord God. This is what he prayed when the, rain, uh, when the water had been soaking over his sacrifice and filled up the trench, and he was asking God to bring fire. And notice this little phrase again, Today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I've done these things. God, I didn't do this on my own. Let the people know that this is not just my bright idea. God, this is what you told me to do. And then let's go to 1 Kings 18, 42. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Now, what was that all about? He was praying. This was his prayer posture. He bent down on the ground, squatted, put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, 
go up and look out toward the sea. So he went up, looked, and said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back, go back. On the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Amen. The Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please impress upon our hearts today the power of prayer, the power of bold prayer. And would you give us instructions on how to pray bold prayers? In Jesus' name, amen. This text reminds me of some questions that we normally might want to ask. And so if you look in your sermon notes uh, on the back side of your bulletin, you can follow along with these questions that I'd like to ask and try to give you some answers to today. The first one is this, why would God answer Elijah's prayer for drought? Now, Drought is always a bad thing in an agricultural economy. And folks in Elijah's day didn't have jobs in plants or factories or offices. There was a small number of people who we might say were middle class or businessmen or entrepreneurs, but it was very small. Most everybody depended on the land for their living. They grew food for themselves. Maybe a few of them were able to grow some food to sell. They would have animals, goats, sheep, maybe a cow or two. Very rarely would anybody own a horse. Somebody might have a mule or a donkey. And so the rain was a very, very important thing for people, just like for farmers all over South Carolina. We see it on the news from time to time when there's a, a low level of rainfall and, and sometimes the cotton farmers and sometimes the soybean farmers and sometimes the tobacco farmers, the corn farmers, they all have a tough time if there's not enough rain. And so why would God answer the prayer of Elijah? That's a good question, I hope, for you. Now, let me give you what I think are some good answers to that question. Number one, the spiritual condition of Israel demanded drastic action. You say, what was the spiritual condition in Israel? Well, keep in mind that at this time, the nation of Israel was actually divided into two nations. The southern group of people, known as, uh, as Judah, was comprised basically of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And of course, there were some who, who came into Judah who didn't like what was happening in the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel. Southern kingdom had her capital at Jerusalem, and they had some really good kings, and then they had some wicked kings. The northern tribes were made up of the other ten tribes. Some of the Levites, of course, would stay in Jerusalem because they attended the temple. But in the northern kingdom of the ten tribes, there was not one good king. And this happened over a long period of time. A long period of time. And so all these kings were wicked and evil. Now, here's why it got off to a bad start. The first king of the northern kingdom was a man who was jealous of David. He was jealous of Solomon. And so when he had his opportunity on the death of Solomon, when Solomon's son took over, he broke away and took those ten tribes with him. They were willing to follow him because they too didn't like Solomon's policies. 
And they established their capital city at Samaria. And since they didn't want to send people to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, he established a worship center and he established an idol, a golden calf for the people to worship. Now, in truth, some people did go back to Jerusalem to, to worship God on certain holy days and holidays. But most of the Israelites in those days who followed the northern kingdom worshipped idol, idols, and they committed idolatry. And so over this period of time, perhaps the most wicked king they had ever had or ever would have in the northern kingdom until they fell was King Ahab. And most people believe that he was influenced to be so ungodly because of his wife, Jezebel. Is anybody here who has a daughter named her daughter Jezebel? Why is that? It really has a negative connotation, doesn't it? We think of Jezebel as an immoral woman, and she was. We think of Jezebel, that name Jezebel, as an ungodly person, and she was. And so these two, Ahab and Jezebel, were so evil and so wicked, they really encouraged people not to worship God, but to worship idols and to walk in the ways of their flesh. Do whatever feels good to you. Do whatever you want to do. Nobody should be able to tell you what's right and wrong. You are the one who can tell your own self what you want to do, what's right and what's wrong. Does that sound familiar to you? Is that like the day we're living in today? I mean, if you go out and try to say, well, you know, the Bible says this. You know what somebody's going to say? Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. Don't tell me what to do, what not to do. And you see, today, people aren't looking to a moral standard like God's Word. I mean, that's passe. That's politically incorrect. That is something that will get you slapped down almost anywhere these days. People are looking to themselves for what feels good, for what seems right, for what I want to do. And that's how people live. Let me ask this question. What would it take for America to turn its focus and turn its attention back to God? Well, you know, there was a brief spell in recent memory that that happened, but it was short-lived. It was when the World Trade Centers were attacked and came tumbling down. Do you remember where you were when you got that news? Yeah, I do. I remember exactly where I was. And just a few days later was the first Sunday after the attack. And you know what happened in the churches all over America? They pretty nearly filled up. And I thought to myself at that time, hallelujah, revival started. But the next Sunday, it was back to normal. <laughs> and what has happened since then? Things haven't gotten better in America, have they? Things haven't gotten better in the world. And so here was God saying, it's time to shake these people up. It's time to get their attention it's time to get them shaken loose from their idolatry. And so he was willing to answer that prayer. Here's the second thing. When the simple basic needs of life are removed, God has our undivided attention. When the simple basic needs are taken away. In California these days, they're turning off power because they don't want the power lines to be blown down and start forest fires. What about when hurricanes come? Some of you remember Hurricane Hugo. I do. I remember living in Hanahan. I was pastor of this church at Hurricane Hugo. And some of the members of our church were without electricity for how long? Any of you out of electricity for a week? Yeah. We were just out for a few days at our house, but thank the Lord we had a, a gas hot water heater. <laughs> and our phone lines were underground, so we didn't have any loss of phone service. 
But can you imagine what it would be like if you didn't have water for a few days? I mean, we might be out of water for a few hours when the water line breaks or when the company, the water company has to make some renovation. And so when God interrupted and said, here's something that's going to be missing, rain, and it's going to be not just for a day or two or a season or two, it's going to be for years, he got their attention. What would it take for God to get our attention? What would it take for God to get your personal attention? What illness would it take? What illness would it take in your life to bring you to your knees to call out to God? Or what illness for some member of your family would it take? And all of us either have experienced or know somebody who has experienced that kind of an illness in a family. How many of us have not been touched by cancer? How many of us have not seen a, a relative or a close family member or even a spouse or a, a parent or a child who contracted some form of cancer that was deadly and terminal? Did God get your attention? I hope it doesn't take that for any of us, but it could. And then here's number three. God wanted to remind his people that he is still God. What does it take to remind us that God is on the throne? And God is not tempted to evil. God is not tempted to do bad things or just to trick us or to cause us to stumble. God only wants to do what works for the eternal good of his children. In one of my earlier prayers, I prayed for a good friend of mine in Mount Pleasant whose wife died. But that's not the whole of the story. His oldest son, first of all, got cancer. And, of course, it's a devastating thing, and, and the son and his wife had one little boy, their grandson, their only grandchild. And so we prayed together, and they were devastated that their son had cancer, but they, they prayed for God to heal him, and he went through some radiation, and he went through some surgery, and they thought for a while that everything's going to go well, but ultimately their son died. And that was so hard. I mean, I've been with families who've lost a child. That's always hard, regardless of what age the child is. And so after the son's death, and they began to try to repair their own hurts and, and griefs and, and try to ask God why and not get an answer, but they kept going. We chatted from time to time. I even got to meet the grandson. He, they brought him down, you know, for a weekend. And then the word came that his wife had cancer. And she had cancer, and they thought, well, it's not serious. It's going to be okay and again, she had surgery, she had therapy through chemo and radiation, and it got worse, and she died. And now he's saying to me, why doesn't God just take me? Why can't I just die with her? Why, can't, why, can't God, why didn't God heal her when we prayed so fervently for God's healing? Now, folks, we don't always know the answers to these things. But when God allows something in your life that is so drastic and so harsh and so hard... He just might want to use it. I don't think he causes it for this, but he just might want to use it to get your attention. And say, look, I've got some good news for you. I'm not finished with you yet. I've got eternity waiting for you. I've got heaven waiting for you. But on this earth right now, there's something more for you to do. I think those are some of the reasons why God answered the prayer for Elijah that it wouldn't rain. And he wanted to say, I'm still God. Now, here's the second question. Why would Elijah pray such a prayer? <laughs> That's a puzzle too. Why would, why would he ask God not to let it rain, to, to not let it rain, to keep it from raining for a period of time? 
If Elijah was not acting on God's behalf, if Elijah was just doing this because he wanted this to happen, he would be in grave danger. He would not last for three years with Ahab on the throne. And if you read the story that's remaining in 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18 that I didn't read this morning, you'll understand that God protected him. Only the hand of God could do that. And so here's why I believe Elijah was willing to pray a bold prayer. And this becomes instructive for you and me as to how we can pray bold prayers. Number one, Elijah walked with God. He walked with God. I have no idea or suspicion that God would say to a man along the street or a woman along the street who didn't pray, who didn't necessarily know God, who didn't go to a church to worship, and God would just zap him and say, hey, I want you to start praying that it wouldn't rain. I just don't believe God would do that. I could be wrong. Probably not that right. <laughs> no, that's just my opinion. We can differ if we want to. So why did Elijah have the guts? Can I use that word? Why did he have the intestinal fortitude to go to God in seriously, serious prayer and say, God, please don't let it rain. And God and Elijah were on such personal terms that Elijah knew the heart of God. Do you know God's heart? You know, sometimes we Christians pray, but we pray very formal prayers. And they're prayed sometimes from our heads and not from our hearts. We pray the words that we think we should pray instead of the things that we really believe and think are true in our hearts. And sometimes there's a big disconnect. But I believe when Elijah prayed, he had walked with God long enough. He had been with God in intimate prayer and communication so long that he knew what God was thinking. Now, you know, Libby and I have been married for a long time. And we can almost finish each other's sentences sometimes. Sometimes I don't like to admit it when she tells me what I'm thinking. Just being honorary. But basically, you get to know a person over a period of time. Now, it doesn't have to be 50 years that you're a Christian before you can pray bold prayers. But understand me, when you spend time with God on a regular basis, and you're really in prayer, and you're seeking His will, you're, you're reading the Word, and you're trying to understand what God is saying, and you're asking that question when you have your private devotions, God, what are you saying to me today? Is there something you want me to do today? Is there some way uh, you're working in my life? Is there something I can cooperate with you about? And sometimes God won't say anything. But then there are those times when he puts on you such a heavy impression, such a heavy sense, this is what I'm saying, this is what I want you to do, that we know. That's the first step in praying bold prayers. Here's the second step in praying bold prayers. Elijah was confident that God had spoken and in what God had said. A big example of this for me and for Libby is back in those days when we had just finished college and uh, I was pastor of this little church, had been there a couple of years, and during that year our, our first child was born and we came under a conviction that God wanted us to leave our ministry and take our baby and move to the seminary. Now, we didn't know exactly what seminary for a while. And uh, we didn't have the money to do that. If you just had to say, well, it's going to cost you this much money, we didn't have that much money. We lived on a shoestring, and both of our parents were unable, both sets of parents. Uh, Libby's father had already passed away, and 
and my parents had two other kids in college, and, and my baby brother was still coming along, and uh, I don't know if he was in diapers then, but he was a young kid, at least a little punk, I think. And uh, don't tell him I said that. He's not here today. But anyway, so we just said, God, if that's what you want us to do, then show us. And over a period of months, as we prayed what God would have us to do, it became more and more clear. We just had to do it. We, we, we weren't deciding for ourselves. We were just under the sense that God told us to do this. And as we followed what we perceived to be his will, he proved it to us, just like with Elijah. The rain stopped, and then when he prayed later for the rain to come back, the rain came back. We got to hear God's voice. We didn't hear an audible voice. We didn't have messages in the mail. Uh, we didn't have dreams in the night. There was just a sense of conviction. And over and over again, God proved himself true to us. So you make sure that you're walking with God. Make sure when God speaks, you're willing to do what he says. That's number three. Elijah was determined to obey all God said. Now here's the problem sometimes we have. We want God to do stuff, but we don't want to participate in what God is doing. Let me give you an example. You want to pray for the success of hoops, right? Pray that God would bless the hoops ministry. But are you willing to be a volunteer to make it successful? We pray for God to save people who are lost. We pray for God to bring lost people to salvation through our church. But are you willing to tell about Jesus to your friends, neighbors, associates who don't know Jesus? And, and all you basically have to do is tell them your own experience. I found that in Jesus Christ, I have the forgiveness of sins, and I have really a peace that passes all understanding. You see, that's all you need to do. And so when you pray, and you hear God speaking, and you're walking with God, and you're committed to do what God tells you to do, are you willing to be an instrument to make it happen? You see, I believe it would have been real easy if Elijah had just stayed in his pastor's hut, if he just stayed in his upper room, if he just had kept himself isolated and he just studied what little scripture he had. You see, the Bible hadn't been printed yet. The Bible hadn't been written yet, but there were some scripts of Psalms. There were some scripts of the Old Testament uh, books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. He may have had some of that. And he said, I'm just going to busy myself in study. I'm going to busy myself in prayer. And if God wants it to stop raining, he'll send somebody out there to announce. It doesn't have to be me. Well, we wouldn't be reading about Elijah if that was the case. We wouldn't be reading about the drought if that was the case. Because when you are praying a bold prayer, in most every circumstance, you are going to be a person who helps answer the prayer in one form or another. Now, look at the third question. There are some principles. What are they? What are the principles of praying bold prayers? Now, here's the definition of a bold prayer. A bold prayer is a prayer so big, only God can answer it. That's a bold prayer. It is so big, it is so audacious, only God can answer it. I went to a pastor's conference years ago, and the speaker was talking about uh, young pastors taking on great adventures for God and it was the first time I heard this word BHAG. Anybody know BHAG? Anybody else? Okay, some of you know what it's about. And it's not just for pastors, it's for leadership in general. 
and it's spelled B-H-A-G. And uh, it has to do with those things we uh, try to achieve or we attempt to achieve or we pray to achieve, and it means bold, hairy, audacious goals. Bold, hairy, audacious goals. That's kind of like bold prayers. Things that you can't do, things that a group of us can't do, things that our church can't do, things that only God can do. Let me give you some examples. Some of us, for years, I've been doing this for now over 20 years, I've been praying for revival for Charleston. Revival. Genuine, heaven-sent, biblical revival. I can't cause a revival to happen, can you? I've been around a lot of preachers over the years of different denominations. Of course, I know the Baptists better than anybody else I know, but I've known from all, all the different spectrums of different denominations and independent churches. And we have joined together at times to pray for revival. Only God can do that. I, I'm more encouraged today than ever that revival's coming. I see some things happening on the horizon today in Charleston that really encourages me. Not the least of which is that there are a number of young godly men and women who are coming along and are serving in fantastic ways and starting great churches and doing great works. But to see, God is the one who can do that. I can't do it. Our preachers together can't do it. We've tried to jumpstart it. We've tried to light some fires to it, but it, it hasn't worked yet. That's a BHAG. That's a bold prayer. You might have a bold prayer in your life. You may face a mountain that needs to be moved for your life to be what you believe God would have it to be, and you're not in the mountain-moving business. But God is. God can move mountains. And so we need to apply these principles and, and listen to these ideas of why God answers certain prayers and, and why Elijah prayed certain prayers and apply that. Here's the second thing. We must be sure that bold prayer is inspired by God. When I lived in West Virginia last, up in Parkersburg area, we had a little group of pastors that met from time to time for prayer. We'd all bring a sack lunch and sit around a table at somebody's church basement, and we would share, and then we would pray. One morning, one of the men who was older than me at that time announced that he believed God was going to send him on a mission. We said, oh, that's great. What kind of mission are you going on? He said, well, I believe God wants me to go to Washington, D.C. and confront our president. I don't even know who was president then. Can't remember right now. I have to look it up. And we looked and said, oh, we didn't say anything out loud, but in my heart I thought, maybe not. <laughs> I knew this guy, and, and he wasn't a bad person, but I thought, what would he say to the president? Can he even get in to see the president? And so we prayed that God would give him important vision, that God would continue to bless him in this. And you know, sure enough, he went to Washington, D.C. He caught a bus. He didn't drive. He caught a bus, went to D.C., never even got close to the White House. I concluded that was not a God-inspired prayer. That was a desire in his heart. That was something he would like to do. I don't know his motivation. Maybe it was pure, but it didn't happen. You may want a lot of good things to happen. You may have great desire for noble causes. But unless God inspires it, unless God communicates it to you somehow, unless God really puts it on your heart, don't pray it. 
God will show you and lead you in bold praying. Here's the third thing. We must be willing to take a stand and the prayer is answered. You must be willing to take a stand and do what God requires of you. It could require your life. When William Carey in England back in the late 1700s believed God was calling him to go to India for a missionary. There weren't many churches willing to support him. You see, modern missions in those days was not, did not exist. We often look at him, William Carey, and say he was the father of modern missions. By the way, he was a Baptist. And he was so convinced that God had called him to go to India that the day came and they'd booked passage on a ship and they went to India. But the pain and the difficulty it cost him. His first wife died in India. He himself never got to come back to India, uh, to England, his home country. Two or three of his children died in India. He was persecuted in India. He was put in jail in India. He was beaten in India. But my, how God used him in India. Because he was willing to be the answer to his own bold prayers. God may want you to do such a bold thing. And he'll show you, are you willing to stand? Don't be willing to pray a bold prayer unless you're willing to take a stand for what the prayer may require of you. Now, here's three things that aren't in your notes. I just want to leave you with this as kind of a conclusion to the message today. You need to spend time in the Word and get to know God better. Spend time thinking about what God has said to you and how He speaks. My pastor mentor went to help a church in Pennsylvania that was struggling a young, struggling Southern Baptist church. And he asked if I would come up and, and preach in that church in a little series of what we called revival meetings, though we didn't really have revival. And then when I got up there, he said, really, Ronnie, what I want you to come up here for is I really want these people to call you to be their next pastor. That was during the time when Libby and I were struggling about seminary. And so here was an extra possibility in the pot. We could stay at the church where I was serving. They, they didn't want us to leave. We could go to this church up in Pennsylvania. There was an open invitation to come up there and be the pastor. Or we could go to seminary. And here's what our pastor told me to do. He said, Ronnie, you need to get on your knees and on your face before God for a long time to make sure if this is what he wants you to do. That's what he said. He wasn't going to try to talk me into it or out of it. He was simply saying, get on your face before God, get on your knees before God, and hear what God has to say, and then do it. So if you want to know what God would have you to pray for, you've got to spend some time with God. It may mean you've got to expand your quiet time. It may mean you need to start having a quiet time, a regular time with God. And then here's the second advice as we conclude. Do not be afraid to pray bold prayers as God may lead you or give you holy desires. How do you know if God's telling you to, to pray a bold prayer? Well, what are your desires? What is it that he's put a burden on your heart for? You know, somebody comes to the office, Pastor, God's really put it on my heart that our church needs to fill in the blank. Whatever it is. We need to build a new building. We need to repave the parking lot. We need to start a new Sunday school class. We need to do this, that, and other. You know what? If God's put it on that person's heart, it usually means they're the one to launch it. And I become a... Most... They don't want to launch it. 
They want me to launch it. <laughs> but you see, if God puts it on your heart, you're the one, and you pray for it as a bold request. And then here's the last thing. Here's the last thing. When you do not know what to pray for, how do you pray? I've got some advice. Pray what's on your heart. Pray what's on your heart. What do you really want to ask God to do? You don't have any sense that God's led you or spoken to you about this, that somehow this is what God has told you to pray about. What do you do? Pray what's on your heart. Ask God to cleanse your heart and and begin to pray and ask God for those things that you believe are right and are good. Now let's bow together for just a moment. Just a few minutes, we are going to extend a public invitation. If you'd like to publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ, and I encourage you to come forward to the front of the church during this time. If you have other spiritual commitments that God's put on your heart that you need to make to rededicate your life or to be committed more to prayer, or maybe God has given you some word that you need to pray for certain things and you want to share it, we'll be glad to share it. You come. If you need to join this church, to be a part of this church family, you come. Our Father, we thank you for giving us prayer, for showing us in the word how it works out in the lives of everyday people. Lord, give us the courage to pray bold prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.